Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, today the Ontario government will release its second wave strategy for combating COVID-19. We'll try to break that down for you. Hamilton Council has passed a motion to make masks mandatory in common areas of apartment buildings and condos. We'll get some reaction to that. Advocates and unions are speaking up against the government, saying there needs to be more done to prepare long-term care homes for the second wave of COVID-19. And a petition by some OMA doctors is asking for assistance with potential flu shot crises to make sure that everybody gets the inoculation in time for the flu season. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Premier Doug Ford has announced that uh, today they're going to roll out their strategy for how they're going to be dealing with this. Uh, he's expressed concern, I think we all have anyway, over the last couple of days about the uh, rising number of new cases of COVID-19 here in the province of Ontario. Anybody who ever thought we had this thing licked uh, is sadly mistaken because the numbers are going up. And uh, they're going to un- unveil their, their second wave strategy today. And uh, they gave us a bit of a hint of it yesterday with uh, the Prime Minister, or the Premier rather, and the Health Minister Christian Elliott, who uh, talked about the, the large lineups and, and what they've got in store. We have had a plan prepared since July 30th. This was a long time ago. Of course, we are ready to roll it out imminently. It is dealing with all of the issues that people are concerned about, dealing with testing, lab volumes, making sure that we can continue with the policies and the uh, procedures and surgeries that had to be postponed during wave one, dealing with the upcoming flu season, and making sure that we have the health human resources to be able to deal with a surge in cases, both in our hospitals, in our long-term care homes, as well as in home and community care. There is a plan, it is ready to go, and it is going to be released immediately. Which uh, will be later today, we are told. Uh, joining us to talk about this, Sabrina Nanji, Queen's Park Today. And uh, first of all, Sabrina, thanks so much for the time. Uh, busy, yeah, busy time for, for you, Good to have you back on with us today. Uh, what are you hearing uh, in, in the hallways there, in the empty hallways of, of Queen's Park, about what this is going to roll out? I mean, you know, the other day when the Premier announced that, okay, he's going to start to tighten up the restrictions about gatherings and social distancing and such, uh, I think there was a, a bit of nervousness to say, gee, how, how far back are we going now? Are we going to start shutting things down? What's, what's the word there? Yeah, um, so the Ford government today has decided to mark the first day of fall with with what they're calling the fall preparedness plan, mm-hmm. uh, as as we just heard the health minister, they're saying, you know, this has been something that that has been in the works since at least July, um, but but the rest of us haven't really gotten uh, a glimpse of it yet, and so I, I think this is something that's really hotly anticipated. This is what we're waiting for. You're absolutely right. The cases are going up. We're starting to see upticks again in long term care. Uh, you know, schools are opening. They're they're now reporting. You know, um, uh, even like sometimes a, do- a dozen or more cases in schools a day. You know, people are looking for answers. And as we heard the health minister say, you know, uh, uh, it was it was going to be released in the coming days, and then imminently, and then now it's coming today. Uh, I think this. Uh, we're all we're all really waiting to see what what they're going to do. But you're right there. They have dropped a couple of hints um, over the past week. The health minister and premier have been talking about enlisting pharmacies to help with these long testing lineups. It does feel a bit like pandemic groundhog day. Here we are, you know, talking about Mm -hmm. testing capacity and and long lineups when we were having these conversations, you know, back at the outset of the pandemic. So, uh, you know, the the premier did say this week that, that this is a fluid situation and it is a lot different now. And we have learned a lot since March, but we in the public, you know, we aren't really seeing all of that yet. So I'm hoping that this plan really answers some of those questions. Um, just to get back to the pharmacies, uh, the premier did say, you know, potentially there could be dozens who are helping, who are helping performing uh, and doing these tests 
for people to ease the burden on public health and those and those lineups and, and that might be coming by the end of the week but there's a lot there's a lot that's going to be in this package um, as in terms of how detailed it will be I'm not sure uh, I, I am hoping for you know really specific uh, tangible information but they have given us you know a bit of a, a bit of a broad overview Health Minister Christine Elliott has said the government uh, is working to get to 50,000 tests today we had a record 40,000 daily tests completed on Sunday I believe. So, so we are inching closer to that. And actually, in question period yesterday, uh, Minister Elliott also said that the plan was already being implemented. So I think, yeah, for us, this was a long time coming today. And it matters, uh, you know, for a lot of reasons that we get access to this information, but especially for the public, especially as, you know, we're all wondering, is this the second wave? Um, you know, they need that information to really protect themselves and others and, and know how to, you know, act when they're, when they're out and about. I'm not surprised about the testing aspect of this, and you're right. I mean, the minister and the premier both talked about that the other day because that that's one of the things they, they've been accused of, I guess, by the critics to say that you've kind of dropped the ball on this. Uh, and maybe we've all become a little complacent over the summertime because the numbers started to go down and a lot of people weren't paying much attention to it, but, uh, but to, 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 to the testing anyway. But they certainly are now, aren't they? The lineups are, are well, remarkable, really. Yeah, and that's a lot of factors, you know. I mean, I guess it is uh, the silver lining here is that people are going to get tests, but there are also concerns that, you know, if people take a look at a lineup, um, hearing that they might not, you know, get in if they're not in line, you know, really early in the morning, they might just walk away. And I think that's where the premier and the government is hoping that pharmacies, uh, at the very least in hotspots, uh, that, that is also another thing we've been hearing that it could just be hot, uh, pharmacies working in the hotspots and maybe, you know, uh, dealing with more asymptomatic people, people who aren't quite sure, worried they might have been exposed rather than people who, you know, are showing symptoms, maybe even severe symptoms. The premier has suggested that he wants uh, assessment centers to to maybe handle those patients. Uh, and, and, you know, there are concerns even, um, you know, at, at a shopper's drug mart, if there's going to be a, a lineup or a gaggle of potentially COVID positive people, what does that mean for the rest? of their consumers, you know, uh, seniors, even vulnerable seniors who are just doing their regular shopping. So that's what I mean when I say I, I'm really uh, looking forward to seeing the details of this plan. We've been hearing a lot of high-level hints, but uh, the, the health minister did say this week that there are m- many elements to this plan, and uh, it could even be, you know, uh, announced piecemeal even. Like, I'm not sure if we'll be getting all the details today. The minister did kind of suggest that, that it could be rolled out, you know, in parts uh, because there are many elements to it. But yeah, I think there's there's a lot of questions and um, people are concerned. You know, we've had all this time. We knew uh, about the modeling and and potentially, you know, a second wave. Uh, you know, what's what's the holdup on on these plans? Yeah, and and I understand the uh, the importance of the testing, and I understand you know that they're going to be focused on that. And we've we've heard some of those rumors too, and I, as you have, Sabrina, that uh, you know if the pharmacies are going to be involved, and it looks like they are going to be part of this, uh, you know, you, you just can't walk in and get a test. I guess you have to make an appointment. At least that's what we've heard. They they may be announcing. Uh, be interesting to see if uh, Dr. Williams is going to be part of this uh, presentation later on today too. The Ontario Medical Officer of Health. Uh, about that aspect of it, uh, because this is much more medical than it is political. But uh, we'll see just how they're going to stage this thing a little bit later on. The other question, though, that a lot of people have is the testing is all well and good, uh, but what about preventative measures? Uh, obviously, he's already started to address that by reducing the number of people that can actually uh, be in, in crowds now, and uh, that's that's down considerably, uh, much to the chagrin of a lot of a lot of people that thought we were out of that uh, that 
tentative time right now. But what else is going to happen here? You know, like I say, I don't want to go down the road of saying let's start closing things down. But it's interesting. Uh, the survey that was released last week said uh, the overwhelming majority of Canadians actually would be in favor of a total shutdown again if it was going to stop the spread of the virus. Uh, we're not there yet. I wouldn't think so anyway, are we? Well, yeah, that's, that seems to be what the Premier is saying. You know, he is saying this recent upswing in the numbers uh, of daily cases is, is concerning, and, and he just maintains, you know, we're ready for it. But like I said, we're not quite sure what that means because hopefully we'll get a peek at what we're ready for it means in today's plan. But uh, no, you're right. You know, even the Premier was asked recently if uh, there will be proactive measures. You know, Quebec has started to roll back uh, mm-hmm. some some uh, restaurant measures and that type of thing. The Premier didn't seem too keen on that. Again, you know, saying like we're not we're not quite there yet, and and I do think that they are hoping uh, to 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 maybe see like there's usually a two week um, period where we can sort of see the effects of of that that new measure that's been announced. So the rollback to the social gatherings um, that that are now province wide, it, it might be you know maybe at most two weeks until we see if this is really helping rein in the numbers. Um, but the, the premier is really not willing, you know, to to maybe uh, impose you know small measures on on restaurants uh, like Quebec is doing, um, things like that. You know, Toronto has asked, uh, Toronto Mayor John Tory has asked, you know, to change hours at bars, uh, you know, tighten up those rules, that type of thing. I think the other thing is that the public is not really getting that much information on where these outbreaks are occurring. You know, we've heard a lot about weddings, parties, dinner parties, and that type of thing. But even the rollbacks to the social gatherings, you know, all of those things would still be allowed in some capacity uh and and the premier is really not willing um to share more information uh with the public on on pri- like where where these outbreaks are occurring in private um or, or business I, I should say business business settings you know um like like i said the the rollbacks and social gatherings really just affect uh us like regular folks like me and you it doesn't affect restaurants gyms uh, you know, places of business, places of worship, that type of thing. So, uh, you know, we are in this moment where we're in this four-week pause. Uh, uh, not too far back, they had announced, you know, uh, there's not going to be any further reopenings. You know, there wasn't really much yeah. left to to reopen. Uh, uh, but you know, they weren't going to they weren't going to widen anything and just keep an eye on things. And you know, the numbers have since increased since then. So. Uh, it remains to be seen whether or not we'll see rollbacks. But if, you know, the numbers and the trends keep continuing and the rollbacks to the social gatherings really isn't enough to make a dent in that, I think, you know, they they will they will have no choice and will be forced to, to roll back. I think for the opposition in particular, they're saying that the government is, is you know, this is a flat-footed response. They're constantly behind the eight ball, eight ball and, and scrambling to catch up. I think they would like to see more more proactive measures. And you're right, you know, the public... Um, the public might not mind it either. The polling suggests that that they they would be open to to more restrictions if it means um, keeping this virus in check and maybe tamping down or, or warding off entirely a second wave. Well, because there were a lot of questions. I mean, when he announced, first of all, about the hotspots last week, and he talked about the GTA, uh, Toronto, Mississauga, and Ottawa seemed to be the three hotspots that they should. But then the next day he said, yeah, but you know what? Those restrictions are going to be province-wide now. And it's got a lot of people scratching their heads saying, well, well, wait a second here. I thought you were going to be selective about this. So well, maybe get some clarity on that. Now, listen, i got a couple of minutes left. i got to ask you also about uh, Dr. Dirk. Uh, who is, of course, the chief corridor who uh, the, the premier has put in charge of the, the COVID-19 uh, outbreak response team. Um, 
to the surprise of an awful lot of people, this is a, a guy who's actually come under an awful lot of criticism from from uh, the Auditor General because of the way he's run the, the coroner's department, uh, yet the, the Premier's given this guy a thumbs up and a vote of confidence. Uh, and, and a lot of people are saying, wait a second, uh, you know, your, your track record, Mr. Premier, of appointing people to key positions like OPP Commissioner, for instance, uh, has not been very good. What's this guy doing in this position? What are you hearing about that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, Dr. Heyer, uh, or, or Dr. Dirk, you know, as the Premier fondly calls him, yeah. you know, he always gives him, the Premier always gives him a shout out, you know, like uh, all-star champion. So the Premier is definitely very fond of him, and Dr. Heyer is is a, a triple threat now, essentially, when it comes to, if I can use that word, when it comes to, you know, public health crises in this province. As Chief Coroner, he has, you know, been in charge of leading the, the opioid uh, response um, uh, the, opio- the response to the opioid crisis, uh, you know, he's now in charge of the provincial outbreak response. Before that, he got a position on the COVID command table, you know, uh, running Ontario's testing strategy. And you're right, uh, you know, recently it's come up that here he is, you know, getting all these positions and being praised. Uh, and in 2019, in the last uh, Auditor General's annual report, she essentially like ripped apart, you know, his his leadership and and delved into the uh, like failures essentially at his office uh, in, the, in the chief coroner's office, you know, uh, and he he leads that office. Um, I not to you know get too into the weeds, but essentially some of the problems were about you know inadequate analysis of of mortality data, something that is obviously really important to the to the coroner's office and, and how Ontario handles um, public health crises, uh, things like that, and. So I think that it is raising a lot of questions of, of who's in charge. Um, but there were also, you know, rumors about potentially Dr. Dirk Heyer, you know, replacing um, the chief medical officer, health health mm-hmm. doctor, David Williams, is going to be up there today. Uh, and, and like I said, you know, even Dr. Williams, uh, the premier has never, you know, the premier stands by him. This is not coming from the premier at all. At all but, you know, there were these rumblings going around um, because the premier, he says it every day, you know, we're basing this on health advice. We're basing this on our public health advice. And and I think the people, you know, now that, that we're all seeing the numbers going up, we're kind of maybe questioning that advice a little bit. Or at the very least, people want to want to peek at, at what this advice is given. So I think uh, without, you know, sharing more information with the public, that's when the public and reporters, you know, we start asking more questions about this. And I, and I think that that's why uh, Dr. Heyer is being looked at, you know, a little bit closer. But you're right. These things were, were pointed out by the Auditor General um, just as part of her, her daily work. And um, I, I don't know if, you know, we can attribute all of these problems directly to Dr. Heyer, but, um, uh, you know, the Auditor General certainly did point point these things out. She's an independent officer of the legislature, no, no partisanship or, or agenda, like, on, on her part. So, so it, it, these are important questions, and, and I think the Premier and Dr. Heyer will have to, will have to answer to them. Well, especially because what we've come to know uh, of, of COVID over the last number of months, uh, and, and even in the Toronto area, Sabrina, I mean, you know, you, you could and, and just look in any direction, you're going to find a handful of very talented and very uh, informed uh, uh, infectious disease spe- specialists in Toronto at St. Michael's, at U of T, and all, all sorts of places. Uh, this guy is, is not an infectious disease specialist. That's not his thing. Uh, and I'm not suggesting he's incompetent as a doctor, and I don't think the Auditor General, they just said where he runs the office is, is pitiful. Uh, you know, like keeping numbers and things like that, which are kind of important when you're dealing with something like COVID-19. So I, I think a lot of people are questioning whether or not this is the right guy for the job. But he seems to be uh, in the premier's good books right now, and and you know, you know, qualifications be damned, I guess. And that's that's a little concerning. 
Yeah, it's a little tough, right? And I know, you know, even across the country um, and, and beyond, you know, a lot of our, our public health officials and our public servants are, are being looked at very closely, as they should. But, but these folks aren't public, uh, aren't, aren't elected officials, I should say, at the end of the day. You know, uh, at the end of the day, the, the premier is in charge and, and he, like, he can only do as, as best he can with the advice. So I do think that if there are concerns being raised about, you know, the, the quality and caliber of the advice that he's getting, um, that that's something that the premier should look at. Uh, you know, doc, uh, Dr. Hire has never been, he, even when he was, you know, initially appointed to the COVID command table and, and working on the testing strategy, I think he'd even told us reporters, you know, just sort of uh, candidly, uh, this isn't normally my, my expertise and, and he's still learning about, about things too and getting the hang of it. Uh, and, uh, you know, he, he's pretty candid about it, but I, I do think that, you know, uh, COVID itself is, is kind of a, a new uh, beast for all of us, and, and yeah. everyone is sort of navigating it. Um, in terms of, you know, Do- Dr. Heyer's uh, credentials, I think I think whatever he's, whatever he's shown the Premier and the Ford government, that's been good enough for them, uh, and... Uh, yeah, it doesn't seem it doesn't seem like he, like he's like he's going anywhere. Well, we'll see uh, just who's going to be up at the podium with the premier today, and that's going to roll out. Look forward to your reporting on this, uh, Sabrina. As always, thanks so much for the time today. Really appreciate it. Thanks for chatting, Bill. Take care, Sabrina Nanji, Of course, Queens Park today. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Change for Hamilton City Council, actually an amendment to an existing bylaw, uh, but now saying it's uh, going to be mandatory to wear masks inside apartment buildings and condominiums. Uh, Dr. Nin Tran is Hamilton's Associate Medical Officer of Health and uh, explains why the change was being recommended. Where it already says common areas of hotels, motels, and other multi-unit dwellings, um, but so we would be adding apartment buildings and condos, and this would uh, impact areas such as lobbies, elevators, meeting rooms, and other common use facilities. So uh, the reaction to this is going to be interesting uh, from the tenants and certainly from the people that own the buildings. Arun Pathak is the president of the Hamilton District Apartment Association. Uh, joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Arun, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could be with us today. It's a pleasure, always. Good to have you back on here. Let, let me ask you, what's what's your reaction to this amendment to the bylaw? Um, I think generally landlords are supporting this. Uh, we feel that it's necessary. Like uh, <clears throat> the health of our tenants and uh, staff in and around the building is very important and the way things are getting worse. Um, you know, I don't think there's a lot of things that could be discussed about rental housing, but I think this is one where most people will agree it should be done, should be done quickly and uh, hopefully uh, enforced properly. Have you heard anything? Have there been complaints, any concerns raised by the by your members? Um, no, like our members have had to do a lot of changes with uh, what's been happening. We're doing a lot more online rent collection, online repair requests, rental applications, online viewings. We're doing a lot more cleaning and, uh, you know, taking care of the buildings. So uh, <clears throat> there's a lot more work being done. But this, I think, is a very small part of it. And uh, I don't think many people are going to be opposed to this. You know, there's always a small fraction of people who say we shouldn't be wearing masks or we, they, we don't need them. But I think they're uh, not following the science. And the science says we have to do this. 
Absolutely. I mean, I, I, we've heard from them too, but I, I, you're right. I, I think there are a small minority of people that just, you know, this, this, you know, my rights are, well, your rights are not to be infecting anybody else. And, and I think that's part of it. Uh, but, you know, when you get into well, high rise buildings, especially, of course, it, it's, it's a different situation. I mean, for those of us that have been self isolating for the last little while, I can't remember the last time I've been in an elevator. It's been months now. Uh, but obviously, if you can't cram seven or eight or nine people into an elevator like we could in, in the old days uh, because of physical distance. And, and even when you do, it's going to be a, a rather, you know, touchy situation. So masks seem to be probably the best solution here. Yeah, the elevator is obviously one of the biggest uh, areas of issue. Like, the elevators were designed to go up and down with a fairly full load. Yeah. Some are designed to go up and down with six people, some with eight, some with ten, depending on the size of the building. And, uh, you know, they're are times in apartment buildings when people have to wait for an elevator even before COVID. Now, if you're waiting for an elevator, it comes down and there's six, seven people in it. Do you get on? Do you wait for the next one? I think the mask is vital for this sort of situation. And uh, obviously our members are going in there and cleaning fairly regularly, but uh, you can't clean after every ride. So, uh, you know, the mask is the number one protection and uh, we have to use that. Have there been any specific uh, alterations done because of that? I'd just stay with the elevators for a second, if we could. Uh, for instance, I mean, if you go into a store, you know, the social distancing is usually marked off on the floor, you know, don't go beyond this line, et cetera. Any, any, can you do that, or are there restrictions about how many people can actually get on an elevator now? Uh, some landlords have put up signs uh, sort of suggesting that, uh, you know, if there's X number of people, please wait for the next one. But realistically, um, we don't have, um, you know, the authority to sort of limit the number of people on there. And obviously, we don't have the ability to monitor that, how many people are on there at a particular time. But the, the thing is, most people understand the situation. Most people are accommodating. If they see there's a number of people there, they'll wait and wait for the next elevator to come by. So... You know, people are working with each other and supporting each other and trying to keep the social distancing as much as possible. But, you know, there, uh, there is a problem. And, but the uh, people working from home obviously reduce the uh, demand for the elevator at peak hours and uh, people who are going to work and so on. Mm -hmm. So that's obviously helped. But uh, typically apartment buildings do not have so many people working from home as single-family homes do, so uh, there's going to be still an issue. But there's going to yeah, be so many issues in the rental housing industry uh, over the coming months. Um, it's quite scary what uh, might or might not be happening, but this is definitely a step in the right direction. I, I would think the tenants would be pretty much on side with this as well. I mean, you don't want to categorize everybody, but, I mean, you know, there could be people that are, you know, above age 55 or 60, uh, pre-existing conditions sometimes, and uh, they're obviously in a more vulnerable position. So anything that we can do to mitigate the, the, the chances of contacting the virus, I think would they, they'd probably welcome. I would certainly hope so. I haven't come across anybody who's been against uh, any of these measures. So... You know, it's definitely necessary. Like, it's very tough for people, especially seniors who are not working. They're in an apartment, and, uh, you know, a lot of them were used to sort of visiting other people in the building or getting together in the lobby for a chat every now and then. And uh, things have changed, and uh, the isolation 
is going to be a huge issue for people in uh, months to come. It's going to get worse. Absolutely. What what are some of the concerns that you've got? I mean, it's pretty obvious at this point that COVID's not going away anytime soon, so we're going to have to learn to live with this. Uh, how how are your, your your members coping with this? Are they uh, just writing this out, or are there some c- concerns about what might happen down the road if this continues for any length of time? Well, unfortunately, um, some of the tenants groups have been advocating don't pay your rent, withhold your rent, and things like that. Yeah, yeah. And landlords need that money to keep functioning, to pay their superintendents, keep the hydro on, to keep the heat running, or whatever. And... Uh, you know, we did have a plan that we wanted the uh, federal government to uh, follow, whereby some of the supports that are going to tenants would be coming directly to the landlords with, on a joint application by a tenant and a landlord. And the idea was that tenants and a landlord could apply to the federal government for support, the rent would come to the landlord, and the government could then, um, the government would get the social insurance number, and if people didn't qualify, they could recover that money. It was a plan that required a bit of work, but uh, the federal government didn't go for it. And uh, people withholding their rent are going to be uh, at risk of being evicted. Uh, you know, it's, it's nice to say we'll, we'll hold on to our rent, but people who hold on to the rent intending to pay it next month, they have a tendency to find a need for that money, and sometimes they don't save it fully, and uh, there's going to be a lot of issues going forward. And that's that's not a problem down the road. That's a problem right now. Well, it's starting right now, and, uh, you know, it's probably going to get worse. It's probably going to get worse as uh, time goes by. Well, even for people that are working, and we've heard those stories, of course, anecdotally, uh, as you say, I mean, you know, there's been a, a loss of income if they've been laid off. Uh, they're not sure. They've, uh, the SERB benefit, of course, has helped an awful lot of people. But, uh, you know, when you're on a limited amount of money like that, uh, even, you know, as helpful as it might be, uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, there are groceries. There's this to pay, that to pay, and, and rent has to come into that as well. And I guess what a lot of people are doing now is reprioritizing exactly where rent stands in that uh, to-do list. You know, it probably should be at the top or near the top, but it isn't always, is it? Yeah, well, there's a couple of things that should be done probably by the federal government. There should be a ramping up of rent banks so that people who are genuinely have an issue can get the support they need. Also, over the last few years, there's been more and more talk about rent subsidies and funding them more, and that needs to be fast-tracked. People who have a genuine problem need to be helped, and there are a lot of people who have that financial problem. And uh, the federal government needs to find a way to deal with it quickly. We don't want a situation where landlords can't keep paying their bills and tenants get evicted, and, uh, you know, where are they going to go? What are they going to do? There is... Housing has to be the number one, number one or number two concern. Food and housing have to be the top two concerns for a country going forward. And uh, we need a little bit more uh, from the federal government to uh, sort this issue out so that, uh, um, you know, landlords aren't left without rent. They can't afford to run their buildings and tenants have the ability to stay where they are, pay their rent and pay for their necessities. Well, the uh, speech from the throne is tomorrow. We're going to get some sort of an outline as to how the government's going to approach this. Uh, this is not the first time this discussion has happened, of course. I'm sure the government is aware of it, and we'll see just uh, what they're going to uh, propose anyway. Aaron, thank you so much for the time. Great talking with you. Stay well. 
Thanks. A pleasure to be on. Take care. Erwin Pethak, of course, president of the Hamilton District Parkland Association, uh, commenting on the uh, the Hamilton uh, modification of the bylaw about uh, mandatory masks now in common areas like apartment buildings and condos. Uh, not the first one to do that. Toronto and Peel did this uh, some time ago. Uh, York Region and, of course, the city of Burlington uh, also did this back in August. So Hamilton's playing catch-up here, but uh, I suppose better late than never, right? You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Advocates and unions are speaking up against the government, saying that uh, there needs to be more done to prepare long-term care homes for this second wave that seems to be upon us right now. Not confirmed yet, but certainly they had the spike in the number of new cases is troubling, to say the least. Uh, I don't think we need to go into detail again about the terrible, terrible circumstance in long-term care facilities back in the springtime with the spread of the virus. The number of uh, people that actually died as a result of that, or some of them are still stricken, of course, with that. So the government, and it's specifically the Premier, had said that they were going to do something about this. Uh, well, it's upon us right now. What's happening and what are the concerns? Uh, joining us to talk about this is uh, Bill Van Gorder, who is the Chief Policy Officer, uh, Pro Tem with CARP, the Canadian Association of Retired People. Uh, Bill, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could join us today. Thank you, Bill. Happy to be back in Hamilton. Well, it's good to have you with us. And uh, I guess the first thing here is we don't want to go through a sense of deja vu here. Uh, the horrific uh, details about the, the way that COVID just spread through long-term care facilities back in the springtime. Uh, I talked to the Premier about it when he was on the show a little while ago, and he says, we're going to do something about this. Uh, well, it's upon us right now. Has your comfort level increased at all? No, it hasn't. Uh, CARP, along with others, have been asking for months now for changes, and we're still seeing the same things. Understaffing, lack of training, uh, lack of staff, uh, uh, improved uh, conditions uh, within long-term care homes and, and others, and we really haven't seen any improvements or changes at all. It's not as if they haven't had time to do something about this. No, and it's not as if, I mean, we were, we understood uh, with the first wave that uh, this was all new. It's something that we hadn't really dealt with before. So there was some reason to understand the slow reaction. Uh, but it's been six months now, and, sure, and we've learned in six months. And why haven't specific steps been uh, taken before we end up with uh, another wave? And in, 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 in some cases, uh, we have worse conditions than we had six months ago, especially in terms of staff. Well, and, and you know what, there's no excuse for that in a situation like this. Uh, you know, we talked to a number of people that were involved in, in, in the associations, of course, with CARP and with other, uh, including healthcare workers that were involved in, in what happened back in the springtime. And uh, I, I think probably a fair characterization, Bill, is uh, COVID maybe didn't cause all those problems. What it did, it, it exposed problems that were already there in those facilities. Exactly. And uh, CARP's been talking about uh, those uh, problems for, for years uh, now. In fact, I've been involved with CARP for uh, over 15 years now. And some of these things we've been talking about uh, since the beginning. And uh, the, the excuse was always not enough money or we'll do it later. Well, now is the time. And if we don't, you know, the best time to plant a tree was 15 years ago. The second best time is today. Why aren't we starting today to make those changes 
Well, and it's not as if they have to identify them. I know that he struck some course, some uh, you know group of people that are actually working behind closed doors, which is not very encouraging. It doesn't give a whole lot to confidence levels for people that are looking for some answers here. But, Bill, just pick up the phone and talk to you or to talk to anybody else who's been involved in this for the last 15 years or so. They can tell you the problems. I mean, you don't have to dig too deeply to find out what those are. As you say, it's it's staffing, it's working conditions, uh, it's pay for the staff. Uh, it's it's it, there's a, just a, a long list here that's that's self-evident. I don't understand why the government's dragging their heels. No, uh, we, and we don't understand why why they're not happening either because we know what the problems are and we know uh, some of the steps that need to be taken so that can they can be changed and they're it's just not not happening. And when is it going to happen? Uh, or are we going to go through this every time there's a uh, a new emergency? And now. Now, or even taught somebody from the Ministry of Long-Term Care said uh, there may be critical shortages that mean the hospitals won't be as available now as they were six months ago. That that means that's getting worse. Yeah, therein lies the problem. It's all, it's a domino effect, isn't it? I mean, it starts in one place, and then of course other facilities. In this case, primary care facilities, i.e., hospitals, are going to be impacted by this. Now they say that they're ready. Uh, for this, but they don't know how heavy the influx is going to be if it happens. Well, they they don't know, and staffing is still uh, an issue. Uh, we've got staff who have been working uh, very hard for the last uh, six months. Who are uh, we're hearing that they're burned out. That uh, uh, that uh, people are saying they stuck it through the first one, but uh, uh, the older ones with retirement coming are saying they're not going to stick uh, with it again. Uh, there's a training program we have here in Ontario uh, that uh, it qualifies workers in just six months. If that had been ramped up six months ago, we would have had some new workers uh, coming on board. And, you know, it it probably is not. It would be nice to pay these uh, the staff more more money, and I'm sure they're happy of it. But that's not why people go into the to the long term care uh, business looking after other people. It's because they really care. They want to do it. We need to support them, and we want to make sure that they have the training uh, they need and the expertise around them. You know, we keep talking about the frontline workers, but managers need more training uh, too, and so do the other health professionals, the infectious disease specialists are needed in all these areas so that this time we're doing the right thing. Bill, whose door do you pound on when you want to enact some of these changes? I mean, because the, 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 the quandary here is that you've got a number of these that are, are privately owned, you know, different businesses. Uh, but the province owns some of them at the same time. I mean, and, and you'd think as a good first step, at least they'd clean up their own act and, and maybe start putting some pressure on some of the privately owned facilities. Well, absolutely would. And what we what we need is better regulations and and better enforced regulations. And, uh, you know, many of the uh, uh, private uh, homes have have had very good success. Many of the government owned municipal or provincial owned homes have not done well. It really isn't a matter of uh, for profit or not for profit. It's a matter of the care, the regulations, the the rules that are, and the age of the facilities that these uh, that these long term care uh, our, our older adults have to live in. 
Well, exactly, and that's one of the things that we discussed, of course. You've got older buildings there, some of them without air conditioning, of course, which may be not a factor this time of year, but, I mean, uh, there's there's a concern there about HVAC systems. Uh, you've got sometimes two, three people in, in one facility, in one area, uh, which is not healthy, especially when it comes to a, a virus like COVID-19. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot to discuss here, and, and, and a and, lot and of things... Yeah, and, and, and these aren't new. These aren't new uh, questions. These, these are things that have been raised for years. The other area, by the way, that CARP is very concerned about is we've got to put more emphasis on home care and community care, so that because there isn't enough room in, uh, in these facilities for all the older people who need a little extra care, and unless we ramp up. Uh, home care and community care so uh, so older adults can get the health care they need before they have to go into long-term care then we won't have them as as sick and, and at high risk when they eventually go into a facility we really have to stop thinking that warehousing our older adults is the only way to look after them uh, in their senior years Let's face it, the overwhelming majority of seniors would prefer to be at home. Uh, some can't because of medical conditions, etc., which is why these facilities are here. Uh, but the government's got to get that message, too. Uh, Bill, uh, you know, the, the great work that CARB does here is so important to this discussion. Uh, they need advocacy, and, uh, and you've been supplying that for many, many years. So, uh, please keep it up, because uh, we've got to get the government's attention on this. Thank you, Bill. Appreciate it. Good talking with you again, Bill. Take care. Bill Vandergord, of course, the the Chief Policy Officer with CARP, the Canadian Association for Retired People. And uh, we'll see just what this uh, task force that uh, the Premier has set up is actually going to come up with uh, in the way of recommendations. Now, let's uh, talk about the flu. I know COVID is on everybody's minds, justifiably so, but uh, we are heading towards flu season, too. And as cases of COVID-19 increase across the country, hospitals are bracing for that second wave, of course, but also for the flu. And with the the flu season just weeks away, Global's Heather York-West has this report. More Canadian families are planning to get their flu shots this year amid the ongoing coronavirus pandemic, according to research out of UBC. To prepare, the Public Health Agency of Canada has ordered 13 million doses of flu vaccine, as it expects a surge in demand. Pediatric emergency room physician Dr. Stephen Freeman is also warning that while COVID-19 usually results in a mild illness for kids, the flu can make young children very sick. And he worries that kids could also become seriously ill if they become sick with both viruses at the same time. In a normal year, the flu often pushes hospitals past their capacity. Heather Urex West, Global News. And, and therein lies the problem. Thank you, Heather, for that report. Uh, it's it's the deadly combination, the one-two punch of COVID-19 and uh, the flu. And uh, and I know that you know people try to conflate those two things, and they are two very different things. However, uh, as we found out uh, yesterday, talking with a couple of our infectious disease specialists, uh, the symptoms for both are very similar. Uh, the the impact that it has on your body can be much different. Uh, the flu obviously being a respiratory problem for the most part. Uh, and for people that are vulnerable, uh, of course, it can be, well, fatal in some cases. And there are people that die from flu uh, on a pretty, sadly, in a pretty regular basis every flu season. Uh, there are some things we can learn about this, though. Uh, one of them being, of course, uh, the Australian experience. Australia, of course, is just coming out of their cold sl- winter month. Of course, they have their, their seasons are opposite to what we have here in, in this hemisphere. Uh, and uh, they've gone through their flu season already. And all these concerns that we had uh, about the flu and COVID being around at the same time uh, were realized in Australia. But they, as they started to look at some of the statistics, uh, were pleased to find out that actually there were fewer flu cases 
than there usually are. Um, and the ones that they actually had to deal with were less severe than have been in the past, which is interesting. Uh, now, it's not because of, 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 of some magical thing that went on. What it basically is, they, they feel anyway, is that the precautions that we are taking for COVID-19 also work about uh, stopping the spread of the flu virus as well. You know, we're wearing masks. Uh, we're washing our hands a lot more, which we should be doing anyway. But let's face it, we all get lax about that. Maybe not so much now. So we are following those protocols and social distancing. And that obviously stops the spread of the flu virus at the same time, uh, which is going to make things an awful lot easier. So we can learn from that. But the other element to this that we need to keep in mind is, is for all the talk we've heard about, you know, we've got to get a vaccine for COVID, and hopefully that's going to be happening. They figure maybe by the springtime of next year. There is a vaccine for the flu, and pediatricians uh, are, are actually circulating a physician petition right now, the Ontario Medical Association doctors as well, asking for assistance with potential demands for the flu shots this year. Dr. Samantha Hill is the president of the OMA, joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Doctor, thank you so much for the time today. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me on the air. Such an important topic. Well, it is, and you know, we tend to COVID, 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 and I understand that certainly it's front of mind with us. But uh, we we you got to keep our eye on the ball here, and the flu is something that that really is concerning, and and there's a solution to this. It's called the flu shot. Absolutely, and while the flu shot is never 100% effective, it is a key part of our defense against the flu, and the flu kills hundreds if not thousands of people every year. So you're right, this needs to be a focus, and it needs to be a focus now while people are paying attention. Well, especially, as I say, you know, we're, we're looking at a, 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 some sort of a vaccine for COVID. We're worried about this deadly combination of, of flu and COVID-19. Uh, the flu shot, is, is that's, that's the, the shield, that's the, 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 the defense we can put up for this. It absolutely is. You know, some of the things that we do for COVID, in fact, all the things that we do for COVID should help decrease the transmission of the flu as well. So a reminder to everyone to wear their mask and wash their hands and stay away from other people as much as they can. But the the last line of defense before getting sick is that flu vaccine, and it's getting it in a timely fashion, and it's getting it across enough of the population that we can protect those people who actually can't get it for one reason or another. What define flu season for us, Doctor? I mean, we tend to think of the winter months. I mean, we're just uh, heading in. Well, this is the first day of autumn, just 9.30 this morning. Happy autumn, by the way. Uh, Happy autumn. Is is it too soon for a flu shot? Should we be waiting until the weather gets colder? It's a little bit too soon now. In fact, the flu shots aren't even out yet. They usually come out towards the middle of October, and I'm assuming they'll come out around the same time this year. And the reason for that is that the flu vaccine, or the flu virus rather, mutates as it travels around the world. And so if you're too far ahead of the curve, so to speak, if you're too early, you won't catch the most recent mutations and your flu vaccine will be less effective. So you really want to get that perfect window. And of course, there's no such thing as perfect. And especially in 2020, there's no such thing as perfect. But we're looking to optimize getting the best information and having it in place as effectively as possible when the actual virus hits our shores and starts running through our community. Now, there are so many different coronaviruses, uh, as you say. I mean, it's, it's sometimes like trying to throw a dart at a dartboard to figure, okay, this is the one, and this is the one that's going to be most effective. But, but there is some technology that goes into deciding what, the, vir- what the, the, the flu vaccine is going to look like and how effective it could be. Absolutely. So there's a lot of research and a lot of science that goes into this. It's, it may feel like a guessing game, but it's not. It's about predictive biology and looking at what is coming across, what's in Australia, what's in other areas of the world, looking at not just what's there, but what's increasing in count versus decreasing in count, and using that to predict based on previous years 
what's going to hit our shores and what's going to be here with us. And then we do our best, right? We take those strains that are most likely and we use them to build the vaccine. And that vaccine is what gets administered. And it offers more coverage than every, anything else that you have available right now. Well, we've talked about, you know, what's going to happen when and if the COVID vaccine becomes available. And it's probably, as we say, probably going to be six or eight months from now at least. Uh, and this, one of the major concerns that I've heard from an awful lot of people, of course, is distribution once it's available. Uh, the nice thing about the flu vaccine is it's readily available. You can go to your local pharmacy and get a shot. For sure. And it's going to wind up being a little bit of a uh, predictive model, I think, for the COVID vaccine. What's different about the COVID vaccine than other vaccines is that normally we give vaccines staggered across different age groups. And so the whole population isn't coming in at once to get a vaccine. With the flu vaccine, that's exactly what happens. You have a narrow timeline and you really want to get the whole population vaccinated at once. This year, of course, is different than previous years because of all the precautions that we've instituted for COVID. And so this is the first time we're doing that kind of mass immunization in a context of making sure that everyone has enough PPE and that there's two meters distancing between people and that they're sanitizing and that we aren't creating the possibility of an epicenter forming. And so what we do with the flu vaccine and how that plays out is really going to be important in informing how we roll out the COVID vaccine when it becomes available. Well, if we all wore masks and uh, we're, you know, doing our high hygiene as we're supposed to make your job an awful lot easier wouldn't it it really would and you know i think it's really easy this year to feel overwhelmed i think it's really easy to be frightened and to think that there's so much going on in the world that is beyond our control that we forget about the parts that we do have control over and i think that's one of my big jobs here as president of the ome and as a physician is to remind people that nothing is perfect. There was always risk. There's more risk now, it's true, but there was always risk. And you do have control over your behavior and you have control over how to mitigate some of the risk that happens to you. And so that's just, of course, a call to everyone to remember to do those things that worked at the beginning of the season. You know, wear your mask, wash your hands, social bubble, stick to your 10 people, don't mix, and keep two meters between you and the next person who isn't part of your bubble. You do that and you create a wall between you and the next person and that that's the epitome of being canadian is how do we protect each other what do we do exactly doctor as always thank you so much for this uh, continued good luck and stay healthy thank you you too stay safe appreciate the time dr samantha hill the president of the ontario medical association the bill kelly show weekdays from nine to noon on 900 chml the bill kelly podcast is available on apple podcast google podcast or wherever you get your podcast from you can also listen to the bill kelly show weekdays from nine till noon on 900 chml i'm bill kelly thanks again for listening and don't forget to subscribe to the podcast it's free so you never miss an episode and make sure that you rate and review